Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life. And I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. If you want, you can go ahead and open up to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. And I will meet you there here in just a minute. Nehemiah chapter 4. In 1973, a man by the name of Peter Jenkins uh, set out on what was probably the first trip of its kind. There had been people hiking for years as a, as a recreational activity, but, but Peter Jenkin, Jenkins did something that uh, not many people had ever done. He set out from up north in uh, New England on a trip that would take him about a year and a half to the Gulf Coast of the Gulf of Mexico. And he had this plan. See, Peter had, had become um, not enamored, but had become overwhelmed with the the need to just get away and spend time by himself. And so that's exactly what he did. He wintered that winter in Appalachia, and being a guy from up north in 1973, walking through some of the smallest counties and smallest cities in the south, the the book that he wrote afterwards, which was published in 1975, called A Walk Across America, um, recounts the the times when he would get to farms and people would question why he was there if he was he was a serial killer you know or something like that 1973 a guy from up north walking through the country who's from new york chances are he's not there on accident and so people really had a hard time taking him in. Now, the overwhelming majority of people that he met were very hospitable and that sort of thing. And He spent the, the winter in Appalachia working on a farm, and then later on he would spend some more time in uh, Alabama working and so forth, and eventually he would get there, and then later on he would write the book, and then a few years after that he would write another book uh, and so forth. But Peter Jenkins had this thing in his mind that he had to get away. For whatever reason, he had just graduated college and he decided it was time for him to do something. And so he decided that what he needed to do was start walking. Afterwards, uh, someone interviewed him for a TV show. Realistically, um, he became somewhat popular during this walk. And so news stations along the way would hear that he was going to be there and they would try to interview him. In fact, there's a, te- there's, a, there's a movie, rather, where a man is doing something very similar, and people from all over the country try to get with him and to ask him why he's doing what he's doing and so forth. Y'all, y'all have seen that part of Forrest Gump, right? When he's running across, that's, that's taken from the story, or supposedly taken from the story of Peter Jenkins in 1973 who walked south. In one of those instances where he was interviewed by the news, they asked him, what did you see when you, you had walked all this way trail? I mean, he, he took some trails, but most of the time he's walking down woods, 
with no trail or down a road in the middle of the country in Tennessee or North Carolina or something like that. They asked him, what did you see the most of? And he said, um, I saw the most of my feet during the trip. That's, that's what I saw the most of, my feet. He didn't do it because he wanted to see something. He didn't do it because he wanted to meet people. He did it because he decided that the best thing for him to do was just to get away. And so he did just that. And he spent about a year and a half doing what he had decided to do. In Nehemiah chapter 4, there's another decision. Now the interesting thing is we're going to go to two different Old Testament stories and see decisions that were made in the Old Testament and see the difference between the two decisions. And realistically, we're going to see why the difference is there. Okay, So Nehemiah chapter 4 is our first stop. Verse number 1. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, Nehemiah had come. His whole reason for existing at this point was to build the wall of Jerusalem. Okay, When Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and, uh, and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Here, Oh God, now this is, this is Nehemiah's prayer while he's writing this story. So Sanballat says, what are these Jews doing? They can't rebuild a wall. That wall is destroyed and they're trying to use the same materials to rebuild the wall. And it's pointless. And then his friend, Tobiah, says, yeah, if a, if a fox even runs on top of their wall, it's going to fall over. Now I've built some some things in my life. Um, one of those was, well, being the mom, a single mom, there were times in my life where um, I talked my mom into things that I'm convinced that if there had been two of them, there's no way I would have talked her into it. Because I, I, I'm, I'm good at convincing people to do stuff sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. And I know that if she had a level-headed adult with her, one of those was I decided one day that I wanted a sugar glider. Y'all know what a sugar glider is? It's a squirrel with wings. Okay? You didn't know what a sugar glider was. Anyways, I decided I, want one. I wanted one. And so I talked my mom into buying me one. And then we realized sugar gliders need space. That you can't put them in a hamster cage and expect them to be okay. And so she said, well, Lee, now that you have this sugar glider, you need to build its cage. So I went to building this cage. When I got done, her entire office at our house had turned into a sugar glider cage. Made out of one by one inch pine furring strips that... If I had two sugar gliders in there and they flew from one side of the cage to the other side of the cage at the same time, when they hit that other side, the cage was going to fall down. Okay? This thing was horrible. That's what Tobias says. This thing is so horrible that it's going to fall down in a heartbeat. And so Nehemiah says this prayer in verse number 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. 
not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, verse 6. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Keep that word mind in mind as we read the rest of this story. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, not the people from Arab Alabama, these are different Arabs, okay? The Arabs um, <clears throat> and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come against, uh, to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day by night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said... They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all the directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords and spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When the enemies heard, verse 15, that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the wall, whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. So there's the first story. You have Nehemiah and the Israelites building a wall, and Sanballat and Tobiah don't like it. In fact, it's not just Sanballat and Tobiah, it's Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. Multiple groups, multiple cities, uh, city states have decided that it is time for these, these Jews, these lowly, worthless Jews, to quit doing what they think they're going to be able to do because it's pointless. And Nehemiah records in verse number 6 that the reason why they were able to keep doing it is because they had a mind to work. In fact, their mind to work encouraged them not only to take up shields and spears and bows and swords and so forth and stand behind the workers so that if anybody had come and tried to destroy the wall or tried to attack the workers, they had protection. But if you'll notice at the end of that, verse number 15 it says, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the rest of the people, when the enemies had heard that God had frustrated their plans. Wait, God didn't frustrate their plans. God didn't tell Nehemiah that this was happening. We have no record of this being some sort of miraculous or providential inspiration that Nehemiah received that told them that Sanballat and Tobiah were heading their way. You see, the people of God had decided to do something. And then in verse 15, Nehemiah says that when the people of God decide to do something, it's as if God himself has done the work. Now, let's talk about this idea of mind. Um, the Hebrew language doesn't have 
a word for mind. It just doesn't. What it has is a word for heart. And so, realistically, if you want to reword, if you want to write in your margin of your Bible or something like that, in Nehemiah 4 verse 6, the people had a heart to work. The word for heart, or translated mind there, is the Hebrew word leb, L-E-B in English. And it's essentially this. You see, Hebrew, the language is a pictorial language. It means the letters were made to look like things originally. Now, if you look at modern Hebrew, that's not the case. The the language has changed, the, the alphabet has changed so much now that you don't see the same pictures in the letters that you would have when, say, Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And by the time of Nehemiah's writing, it had started to change a little bit, but the words were still there. The word for mind or heart is two letters in the Hebrew. One looks like a backwards C if you took the curve out of it. So imagine you take a square and you draw a square and you take out the left leg of that square so that you have something that looks like this. That's the first letter. The second letter looks like a funny J if you spun it about 45 degrees. The word means shepherd of house. You see, the the C thing means house. And the funny looking J is the shepherd's crook. What Nehemiah said, what the word means, when it says that they had a mind to work, it means they had a heart to work. It's the word for decided. They had decided to do this. They had become the shepherds of their minds. Now, I've never been around sheep all that much. I've seen them at a, you know, a fair and whatnot. But sheep are not, from my understanding, the most intelligent creatures. And they will just start kind of walking away if you're not careful. That's why dogs that train, that bring the sheep back and so forth. And so shepherds would carry a crook or a a staff with a hook on the end so that they could grab the sheep's neck and pull it back. That's the word. That's the picture behind the word that they had a mind to work. They had decided. They had become shepherds of their heart. Shepherds of their tent. Now, let's go on to the next story. Second Chronicles chapter 24. Verse number 1. Second Chronicles chapter 24 verse number 1. Let's look at another story of someone who had decided to do something. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibadah, or sorry, Zabiah of Beersheba, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters, and after Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. So this is, this is years and years after. Sorry, years and years before, rather. Nehemiah's day. But for whatever reason, the, the house of God, the temple of God, had, had become of ill repair. And it was time to just do some freshening up, to, to repaint, to, to remodel, as it were. And so Joash decides that it's his turn to do that. 
He's the king that's going to make sure that the house of God, the temple of the living God, was taken care of. And so Joash decides, we'll look down at verse number, um, verse number 6. So the king summoned Jehoiada the chief and said to him, Why have you not required the, the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord and the congregation of Israel, for the tent of testimony? For the sons of Athaliah. The sons of Athaliah. Now, I don't have time to go into the story of Athaliah, but I want you to read, um, read more about her when you have a chance this week. The sons of Athaliah had broken into the house of God and had used all the de- dedicated things to the house of the Lord for the Baals. And so now it's time to remodel new. And Joash is going to be the king to do that. And so he looks at Jehoiada and he says, why have you not taken in the, ta- the tax that was levied by Moses? Now, Second Kings... The story, the story is recorded again in 2 Kings. Here's what 2 Kings says about this phrase. Joash said to the priests, All the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord. So it's not just a tax. Now, back In Moses' day, he had established a temple tax that was outside of the tithe. And it was outside of the tithes and offerings, which we'll talk about in a second. But Moses had established a tax that was specifically supposed to go toward the taking care of the temple. And that had not been gathered for years. It was a tax that was based upon the census. And so Joash says, why haven't you taken in that money? And by the way, why haven't you taken in any of the tithes? Why haven't you taken in what Second Kings says is the, the money that each man's heart has, has led him to give? So in the Old Testament, if you think that all they gave was tithes, it's, it's a misunderstanding in today's world. Really what they gave was a tithe, a 10% of their giving, or 10% of their income rather, Then they gave their tax, which was a set-aside amount because of the census. So they had their 10%. Then they gave their taxes. And then, on top of that, have you ever heard it called the tithes and offerings? The reason why it's called tithes and offerings is because those are two different things. It's not the same thing as when we get ready to take the Lord's Supper. Um, Have you all ever noticed this? I'm, I'm I'm about to put a little earworm in your head that's going to come up. Every time someone says it, Every time someone says it, you're going to think about this. Are you ready? When you get done with the Lord's Supper, the person who stands up says, separate and apart from the Lord's Supper, we have gathered together at this time, set apart this time, to give of our means. Y'all ever heard that statement before? You that have been members of the church for a while? Separate and apart from the Lord's Supper. Do you know what separate and apart mean? The exact same thing. Separate and apart. Same, you just said the same thing twice. They used to get on to us so much in preaching school. If someone ever said separate and apart, they would stop you in the middle of your sermon and say, you have in front of those people. Why are you saying the same thing twice? I mean, they'd, they'd stop you in the middle of a sermon. Now, if you've never preached, if you've ever preached and you got stopped in the middle of a sermon, just imagine how mind-wrecking that is. Anyways, it's not like that. It's not separate and apart. The term tithes and offerings are not the same thing. They're different things. They gave a 10% of their income, and then they also gave offerings that were free will offerings. 
And so you hear people say, well, in the New Testament, we give free will offerings, which is different than the Old Testament. No, it's not different. They gave free will offerings as well. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 4, Joash says to the priest, all the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, tithes, and the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, the tax, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, the offerings. They gave three different times. The tithe, their taxes, and the offerings. Now, Second Corinthians chapter, or sorry, Second Chronicles chapter 24, Joash asks the priest, asks Jehoiada, why have you not taken this in? And so he commands them, verse number 8, Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 8, so the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And Proclamation was made through Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant, had, uh, servant of God, laid on Israel for the wilderness. Second King says they weren't just giving the taxes, they were giving the tithes, the taxes, and the offerings. Because those things had not been given for so long that people had started forgetting that it was needed. Had started forgetting the commandment of God. Had started forgetting the purpose of the giving and the tithes and the offerings and the taxes to begin with. And so they set, they make this chest and they set it there. And verse number 11, whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. Thus they did day after day and collected money in abundance. Verse 13, so those who were engaged in the work labored. Repairing went forward in their hands, and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. And with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both the service and the burnt offerings. But, verse 15, Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the priests of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. Wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. So you have two different decisions that were made. Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse number 4. After this, Joash decided to restore. Same word as in Nehemiah chapter 4. The people had a mind to build the wall. You have two different decisions that are made. One decision is we're going to build this wall even if it's the last thing we ever do. And it probably will be the last thing that we ever do. And so we're going to take the time and the effort to not only build the wall, but have set centuries set there so that they could protect the people who were building the wall. And in verse 15 of Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah says that what they had done, the decision that they had made, was an extension of, of the decision of God. And God, God had confused the work of Sanballat and Tobiah. Second Chronicles chapter 24, Joash decides, he sets his mind to rebuild the temple. Not rebuild it, but sorry, 
to, to remodel it, to bring it back to its once former glory and to bring back the worship that was supposed to be there the entire time. And so he does that. And yet, the same thing that Psalm chapter 1 warns us of happens. You know, you know why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 33 says that evil companionships corrupt good morals? You want to know why it says that? Why, first, why did Paul take the time to say evil companionships corrupt good morals? Here's the reason why. Because evil companionships corrupt good morals. And Joash had decided, he had become the shepherd of his mind and decided that he was going to build the temple back to its former glory. And yet, evil companionships corrupted good morals And by the time that Joash is old and Jehoiada has been dead for years and years now, now the temple's back in the same condition that it was beforehand. In the New Testament, the concept of decision is actually pretty empty. There really aren't that many times when decision is talked about in the New Testament. You have Luke chapter 14 verse 25 through, 20, through 33, rather, where Jesus gives the parable, if you want to call it that, or, or the, the, the illustration, if you want to call it that. Of Well, I'll just read it in the Christian Standard Version, verse, uh, verse number 31. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? You know, we sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. Y'all have seen that song before, right? We'll probably sing it this afternoon at Family Bible Time. We sing that song, but that phraseology, that, that term in the New Testament is almost not there. Luke 14, talking about a person who becomes a Christian, who then looks back and asks whether or not it's worth it at all. He says, before you ever become a Christian, you need to make the decision that you have what it takes to stay a Christian. Because no man, no king is going to go to war and not decide if he has enough people to make the battle. You need to decide right now before you ever become a Christian, before you ever continue to be a Christian, if you have what it takes to stay a Christian for the rest of your life. That's one time. The other time that the term decision is made is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 6. Realistically, only two times that the New Testament writers used the same terminology as the Old Testament writers did numerous times to talk about what people had decided to do in the Old Testament. You have Joash, the king of Judah, who decides it's time to rebuild the temple and make it back to what it used to be, make the worship back to what it used to be, and yet that decision was clouded by people around him convincing him that it wasn't needed. Culture around him convincing him that there were more important things to deal with instead of the building of the temple, the, the, sorry, the remodeling of the temple. You have the decision made in Nehemiah chapter 4 where Nehemiah and the Israelites Years and years, hundreds of years after Joash had made that horrible decision to stop the rebuilding and and remodeling of the temple. 
Hundreds of years after it, now the temple's not even there anymore. The wall's not even there anymore. And Nehemiah says, if we're going to build the temple, we have to have a wall of protection. We can't be building the house of God with our backs to the people that are around us who want us dead. So let's start with the wall. And they decided to do it even if it was the last thing that they ever did. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse number 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each man, each one rather, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there is actually the word for hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. That doesn't mean that God loves it when the treasurer looks at your check and laughs because he knows, you know, do you know, I was talking with Todd last week, and he, he grew up in a small country church. Uh, well, his grandfather, sorry, was, was in a small country church, and he had been an elder at that church, but some, some things happened, and Todd's grandfather had to step down from the eldership in order to make sure that the church was taken care of. Um, sometimes the worst decision that you can ever make and the best decision that you can ever make is the exact same thing. But after Todd's grandfather had left the eldership and the eldership had dissolved and so forth, he still kept track of the giving. And Todd told me about a day when he was growing up and he was sitting there helping his grandfather count the giving. And his giving, his grandfather picked up a check. This lady's husband passed away last year. And left her a track of land that's somewhere around 600 acres that she's renting out every single week. And she's got her house paid for, two cars, two real nice cars. Her kids are taking care of her. She's got all this money coming in. And Todd's grandfather looked at him and said, $5. Now, $5 back then was a lot more than it was today, of course. But this woman was making a lot of money. And the man counting the checks laughed because of the low amount that was given. That's not in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The word for God loves a hilarious giver, God loves a cheerful giver, is that one who gives so much that it makes them happy, it makes them excited, it makes them hilarious because they get to partake. For God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God loves a cheerful giver and God is able. Having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Word decided means to choose for oneself It means to become the shepherd. It may be a different word in a different language, but it means exactly. Chapter 9 says that we give on Sundays because of what we've decided. We become the shepherds of our mind. And sometimes, sometimes, evil companionships corrupt good morals. And sometimes the weight of the world and the weight of culture changes our mind. We become like Joash. And sometimes we decide 
And we make a decision that says, if it's the last thing I do. There's two different options there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 gives the picture of a group of people in the New Testament that had made the decision of Nehemiah's day. Not the decision that Joash made that was fickle, that as soon as someone gave him some more options, he was out of it. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8 gives the decision that Paul wanted for the Corinthians to do, that Paul wants for all of us to do, and the decision, the same kind of decision that Nehemiah, that caused Nehemiah to tell people who had never been in a battle before, get spears and, and swords and shields and make a bow if you have to and stand behind these people because we're building this wall whether it's the last thing we do or not. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now fast forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 again. And let's see if that decision that was made by those of Macedonia had the same outcome as the decision made by the Israelites or the Hebrews, rather, in Nehemiah's day. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Hang on a second. You mean to tell me that in Nehemiah's day, the people of Israel had decided to build a wall, and their unity and decision is what God did? God confused the plans of Sanballat and Tobiah when God didn't give them that word. God didn't tell them that Sanballat and Tobiah were on their way. They knew it because of something else. But the action and unity and the decision made by the Israelites was an extension of the act of God Almighty. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the same thing happens. The Macedonians give. Well, you know, not everybody has much to give. Macedonians didn't have much to give. Do you know that in the Macedonians' day... In the Roman Empire, I, just, I, I want you to understand the difference between their culture and our culture. Okay? When the Macedonians are said to have given in a great test of affliction, what that really means is you probably need to look at the culture and the time period and the setting in which that is said. A setting in which in the Roman army, Roman Empire, rather, it's estimated that one in ten people was below the poverty level. Now that sounds, uh, that's way less than us, right? In America, one in ten, ten percent, the poverty level is much more than ten percent in America. However, their poverty level and our poverty level are two different things. One in ten people, ten percent of the Roman population was starving to death. Not just that they couldn't keep their lights on. They were starving to death. Macedonia is one of the poorest regions of the Roman Empire. 
So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when he says, in much, in a test of much affliction, they gave more than they could give, and, and so much more that they gave themselves, and then they gave to us. That's the setting that Paul's talking about. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 9, verse 15, he says their unity and their decision was an act of God. God didn't tell them the amount to give. God didn't warn them the amount to give. But their unity, and when people of God make a decision together, it is an act of God Almighty. In your bulletin this morning, if you didn't grab a bulletin, grab one on the way out. In your bulletin this morning, and it'll be in next week's bulletin, there is a chart. On that chart is just a bunch of numbers. And someone joked this morning, you don't know what we make. That's true. That's not my job. You know, I was talking with some preachers this past week, some, some preachers from other cities, and, and we were talking about the different roles of a preacher. One role of a preacher is called, in the New Testament, an evangelist. Which means it's, it's the preacher's, the evangelist's job to, to set the groundwork of faith and, and give a surety that there is a God and that He died on the cross for your sins and so forth. That's the role of an evangelist. The role of a minister is to be there when you're crying, to, to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And then there's this role in the New Testament called a teacher or a preacher. And that role is simply this. To stretch you. To make it uncomfortable sometimes. Because it's only in the uncomfortable that we can truly see what is able to be done. In your bulletin is a list. It's just a bunch of numbers. I don't know what you make. I don't care what you make. I don't want to know what you make. You decide. Will you make the decision, like Joash, where when the weight of the world comes and another option is said, you'll give up? Or will you make the decision that the Macedonians made or that the Hebrews made and say, if it's the last thing I do? And that goes for not only in giving, mind you, I think the implication of what the Macedonians did is far more than the amount of money that they put in the collection on Sundays. The implication of what the Macedonians did was, if it takes it, we will do it. That goes for becoming a Christian. That goes for faithfulness. You know, at one point in the New Testament, when Jesus is dealing with this concept of, of, of temptations... He said, if your right eye offends you, what did he say? Pluck it out, right? It's better for you to go in blinded than to burn in hell. You know, the decision that a Christian makes, like in Luke 14, is not a decision that's just about money. It's not a decision that's just about, I'm going to get up on Sundays and put on some nice clothes and go to a church building and sit and listen to a guy ramble on for 35 minutes. It's not a decision. It, it's not a decision that says, I'm going to read a book every day. Or do homework for a Fisher's Amen course. 
or talk to someone else. The decision that Jesus is talking about in Luke 14 is the decision that whatever it takes, I will do it. In a test of much affliction, the Macedonians didn't just put money in a plate. It says they gave themselves. And then they gave by the will of God to us. If you want to give yourself this morning, now is a perfect time to become a Christian through baptism or through repentance or through whatever it takes. If you're not a Christian, you've never been baptized, the Bible says the only way that you can be added to the church, the only way that you can have your sins washed away, the only way, the only way that you can give yourself to God is through baptism. Now, does that mean baptism is the end-all, be-all, and as long as you're dunked underwater, then that's perfectly fine? Absolutely not. But what it means is that if you want to give yourself to Christ, you have to be put into Christ. And so if you're willing to be baptized this morning, we can help you with that. Maybe, maybe you, make, you need to make the decision that the Macedonians made. Macedonians were already Christians when they made that decision, mind you. Maybe you need to make the decision that the Macedonians made to give yourself before you start giving any money. You know, any time a preacher starts talking about money, the first thought is, well, the church just wants my money. That's not true. That's not true. Well, the preacher's just preaching on giving because he, you know, uh, my giving pays his salary. That's, that's true. However, I'll work at Walmart if I have to. The reason why preachers preach about giving is because we want you to make the decision that the Macedonians made. Give yourselves and then give your money. If you haven't given yourself, don't give any money. But until you've given yourself, you can't do anything else. Evangelism doesn't work if you haven't given yourself. Worship doesn't work if you haven't given yourself. Faithfulness, purity doesn't work if you haven't given yourself. Give yourself. If you need to become a Christian or you need to give yourself through repentance this morning, we're going to stand and Gary's going to lead us in a song of encouragement and you can let us know while we do.